0: Welcome to the MedTech Talk podcast. This is your host, Jeff Pardo. And for this month's episode, it's my pleasure to welcome Justin Klein, co-founder and managing partner of Vensana Capital. Justin is one of the leaders in our MedTech ecosystem, first and foremost, because of his role as an investor and board member at a host of leading MedTech companies. However, in addition to his role as an investor, through his work at AdvaMed and the Medical Device Manufacturers Association, He's playing a major role in the policies that are critical to our industry continuing to thrive. Justin, it's so great to have you on the
1: podcast. Thanks, Jeff. appreciate it. And uh, it's good to be here with you too. And this will be fun.
0: Definitely. So, and we're going to change it up a little bit on this episode and have kind of an interactive discussion on many of the topics that are crucial in our business. But before we get to that, I always think it's helpful to get a sense of where leaders in our business came from, how they got into med tech. And so, to get us started, I know you have Midwestern roots. Can you take us back a little bit and give us a sense of how you got interested in healthcare and ultimately found your way into med tech? Yeah, happy to.
1: Um, so, yeah, I was born and raised in Columbus, Ohio. And um, I think at a relatively early age, I took an interest in healthcare with the goal of practicing medicine. Um, I was in college in the mid to late 90s. And I think through that period, I was working towards you know, being pre-med and, and going to medical school. But I, I think I was observing that the practice of medicine was changing in pretty meaningful ways uh, in terms of kind of quality of life or quality of the profession for physicians. And I started to think about other ways in which uh, I could maybe participate in healthcare, including with the experience and maybe credibility of a physician or physician leader, um, but not necessarily exclusively practicing day to day or week to week. Uh, over time, I started to think about, you know, what what could that mean, and began a process of trying to investigate different career paths that were in healthcare and where a clinical background would be important, but maybe paired with other experiences or applying that in different ways outside of the clinic. I had the chance to uh, to graduate, and then I worked in healthcare administration. At the Duke Health System, and had the opportunity to shadow some really outstanding leaders and administrators. And I think through that process, really confirmed that I was committed to going to medical school, but that I also wanted to pair that with another academic degree. And I'd been thinking about a few uh, different options, but ultimately settled on a law degree as the thing that would be a really interesting complement to the medical background and still keep options open, whether it was clinical practice with some policy work or getting involved in um, healthcare delivery in some capacity or some other business or even, you know, legal opportunity. So I kind of embarked on a dual degree path and through that, ultimately found my way into this world of, you know, emerging technologies and their impact on healthcare, and then finally identified the venture capital role as something that would be a really interesting way that I leveraged those backgrounds kept me close to healthcare. Um, But I can tell you, none of that was a linear path. You know, growing up in Ohio, as I mentioned, there were no venture capitalists. And somehow, you know, (laughs) heading into 1999, 2000, I was completely unaware of the tech bubble and the biotech bubble and all those things just kind of head down, focusing on healthcare and getting into medical school. So it was a a bit serendipitous along the way. I had a lot of great experiences, a lot of great mentors, but ultimately found, you know, this career track. And and I think it's been a good one.
0: Yeah. Now that you have like a great purview on all these different medical specialties, do you think back about like, what, what, if you had gone down that medical route, which area of medicine do you think you would have gone down or what, what fascinates you most looking back? That's a a
1: good question. And my answer is is an odd one. And I was a little bit torn over this because, you know, as I, as I finished my law degree, which was in the middle of medical school, and I was headed back to do a final year of rotations and think about residency, I was struggling with, you know, how far did I want to push my medical experience and training? And I was really interested in venture capital and working with new technologies, but not sure if incremental, you know, clinical time and credentials would really impact my, my, my primary focus you know, in investing. And ultimately, I, I didn't do a residency. Um, and the reason was the, the clinical practice I was most passionate about was actually pediatric urology, mm. which is a very uh, narrow field. <laughs> um, I think part of the interest, though, in it was, um, I, I enjoyed doing things and surgery is something that I felt um, really compelled by. I love children and taking care of kids is really important. And actually, you know, part of, I think, being a good doctor to children is working closely with their parents and educating them on, you know, what what their child's facing, you know, what their options are and, and how to think about, you know, a, a surgical outcome or, or, you know, managing their condition, be it acute or chronic. And so all, all these different facets of it, I really liked. And then, you know, last but not least, urologists generally, when you think about what they have to do all day, uh, they have to have a pretty good sense of humor. And so I found, you know, a good personality fit with other urologists that I rotated with and trained under. Um, it's a pretty unique specialty. And and the most important thing was, um, you know, the ability to help kids and families through difficult problems. But you did it with surgeries that were, you know, usually hour and a half to three hours um, and, and curative, you know, for these kids. A lot of them had inborn defects and things like that. But um, there's a really good... Set of procedures out there that treat most of the conditions kids are faced with in the, in the urology space, and it feels good to provide that kind of outcome to somebody. Yeah, ultimately, that's not an area where I could have applied that clinical background to venture capital and investing, even in med device, and so I forewent that. and And I do miss those opportunities for patient care, right? But uh, that that was the that was the clinical destination
0: if there was going to be one. That's interesting. As you, as you look back, and I, I think about this for myself, like I was a history major, so I use very little, of, well, except reflecting maybe on uh, different deals, but um, very little of my actual degree. But y- your degrees are much more relevant for for what we do. Is there one that you kind of lean on more than the other? That's a good question. Um,
1: so I, my, mine was originally economics, which I thought was kind of a practical degree, and spoke to my interest in business in undergrad. And then I got a biological science degree because it, it sort of dovetailed with the pre-med requirements. Um between medicine and law, though, I, I I honestly feel like I use them both equally. And it's interesting, you know, having not practiced either formally, um, I think a lot of our work, certainly, you know, I'm passionate about innovations that impact clinical outcomes. And so I think a lot through the lens of a of a clinician and a patient, and having, you know, trained in medicine. It's really helpful. The other side of what we do, I think, is trying to plan for the future, and whether it's in deal making or strategy, I think I leverage my my legal background or my training, at least, um, in trying to do a lot of scenario analysis, thinking carefully about what we can establish, you know, today and how that might set us or a company or a team or a group like an investor syndicate for a you know, unpredictable set of potential outcomes in the future. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot A lot of that is what goes into how people think about writing good laws or law and economics and, you know, driving towards, you know, at least setting the table for the best or most efficient path in the future. So I, I think I try to apply that a lot in a lot of our work, how we advise our companies, what investments we make and how we go about making them.
0: Yeah, Absolutely. And, and I think you know part of what at least I see from good lawyers is keep keeping it s- simple you know don't over complexify things from from the get-go um, with you know how you structure these businesses and you know curious if that's you know if that's also how you, you've thought about it as you apply kind of a legal framework to you know to how you invest i,
1: I it, it is and I agree with that very much um I think I think if one tries to over engineer uh, let's say a deal or some kind of arrangement today, you're, you're likely to be wrong on what you think the future looks like. And you can encounter a number of trade-offs when, um, that original framework you envision doesn't fit the situation anymore. Mm -hmm. And I, and I think, you know, one one of my mentors at NEA taught me that, you know, there's a, there's sort of the best deal, which is not necessarily just the best deal for us as investors, it's, it's gotta be a deal that balances all the interests and the incentives of everybody around the table. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, driving for, um, extensive governance or control, or, you know, the steepest economics can really come back to hurt you because in the future you may find yourself in a situation where you've totally undermined the incentives of the people you're partnered with and find yourself at an impasse, um, so keeping things simple, you know, clean terms and trying to preserve those, that alignment of incentives across a range of potential futures, um, I, I think it's been one of the things that I always strive to to prioritize.
0: Yeah, no, that makes a ton of sense. So, And speaking of NEA, I mean, you, you got involved in venture capital with really probably one of the bigger and, you know, most prominent firms. What actually was your entree into NEA? So, that's a good
1: question too. Um, again, never a, never a linear path into this career. I, I had the opportunity though through a lot of graduate school time to do a few different summer internships. And the second that I did was at Latham and Watkins out in Menlo Park and uh, pursued that one because they had some and still have some partners there that are really outstanding leaders in the life sciences ecosystem. And it was through them that I got the opportunity to do some work as a summer associate, including on some med device deals. Um, That kind of got me some exposure to a particular company called Fox Hollow, which was a portfolio company of NEAs. And while I didn't have any direct uh, interaction with Ryan Drant, who was the Fox Hollow board member in the IPO process and their S1 drafting process, I was kind of part of the team representing the investment bankers. I I did note that Ryan, you know, was a well-respected partner in the field and he was somebody that really, um, I think he had a couple of roles prior to joining NEA, but, you know, he joined as a pretty young professional and I think got both mentorship and the opportunity to, to demonstrate what he could do. And, you know, I came to learn that that was really core to how NEA thinks about, you know, venture investing as a, as a profession. And, I got the support of the senior partners at, at Latham to get an introduction over to the NEA team. And uh, they, they were kind enough to actually introduce me to Dick Kramlich, who was a West Coast uh, senior founder of the firm. Uh, had a good you know set of discussions with Dick. And then he introduced me to Ryan, who was over on the East Coast in Baltimore. And uh, Ryan and I met and connected well. And they created a summer internship for me and my final summer before finishing graduate school, that was a really positive experience, and that led to to me joining the firm yeah. uh, in '06 after I finished uh, school. Yeah.
0: And as you reflect on on NEA, I mean, and really interested in sort of how this eventually evolved into Ben'sana. But what are some of the key things you took away from the NEA experience, and and how it sort of informed what you wanted to do at Ben'sana?
1: Well, that's a great question, too. Um, And I'm going to come back at you with a few of these questions, too, because I don't think you're getting off the hook. But I think, um, look, NEA is is an outstanding institution with a really long history of supporting entrepreneurs and being a part of company building as a process. And I think, you know, there are two two values to me that stood out the most. You know, one is um, championing the entrepreneur. Our work is about partnering with entrepreneurs and supporting them, you know, building these companies. And, and that's the second thing, which is you're you're helping build a company. You're not an investor. This isn't a deal per se. Um, you're part of a process that can take time, can be unpredictable. And ultimately, if you bring the right people together and you align those incentives and you give them the right resources, um, you, you can achieve a lot of things that um, nobody would have ever thought possible before. And while that sounds kind of simple you know, and, and almost a platitude, it really is true. And I think if those are the values you embrace and you take a long-term view not only of your company building process with each individual, you know, relationship with your your career as an investor and then, you know, how your firm wants to build its reputation in the community again over 20, 30, 40 years like they have. Um, I think that's the right recipe for success. And so I have always tried to take that long view. Um personally, you know, and in in the work that we do and then, you know, embarking on uh, co-founding Vensano with my partner Kirk. Um, you know we share a lot of the same values and so you know those are things that kind of guide our work today and um hopefully will give us that same kind of success
0: uh, over the next you know many years yeah it's one of the things i always really admired about nea and admire about you know you and kirk at, at Ben'sana, but really the way that nea would stand by companies through difficult times and really work with them to help figure it out uh to me, that is one of the hallmarks. And, and I think, you know, knowing, knowing the two of you now at Vensana, it seems to me you guys really, you know, get into the trenches with the entrepreneurs. And you, you, you know, you, you, when things are tough, it's, you know, there's, you don't back away. You really, you know, roll up your sleeves and, uh, and do the work alongside them. And I, I really think that's a, a special part of what, or at least I noticed uh, about the culture at NEA.
1: Yeah, thanks. I think that's true. And um, you know, it's 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 trying to adopt and have the same conviction and an opportunity that the entrepreneur has. Right. And we we value passion, in our entrepreneurs and knowledge and their experience and you know, their their dedication to pursue something, you know, it's it's probably the most important set of ingredients that go into success in in what we're all trying to do. Um we're never in their shoes per se, but if we can at least embrace that mentality and support it, um, it's one of the most important things that we can do. At the same time, you know, I try to keep in mind that um, sometimes there are circumstances where you just can't keep going, or at least down the same path that you've been on. And one of our other partners taught me that um, there's nothing more precious in this business than the entrepreneur's time, yeah, or, or especially the time of a talented entrepreneur. And if you're partnered with somebody that's really just kind of on the wrong path, one of the most important things you can do is help them reassess the situation and either pivot or stop and then find the next opportunity, you know, where they should be investing their time mm-hmm. and that of their team, et cetera. And sometimes that's hard, right? It's really hard to make that judgment call. But if you develop a trusting relationship with people and and especially if they believe that you're trying to do what's right for them and their team and... Um, and support them, you know. No matter what, you can get to the right decisions. So that's always easier said than done. Um, but it's something that we try to keep in mind as well. Um, just always kind of sanity checking, you know, how we see a situation, how we're how we're progressing.
0: Yeah, I, I really share that view. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, one of the one of the hardest things in our business, I think, is that we have to say no to you know ninety nine percent of the things that we you know we look at but i always feel like for the stuff that we spend time on in particular i mean i think it's it's important to respond to everything we see but the the things that we spend time on in particular but maybe don't get there is that we we give some sort of meaningful feedback to the entrepreneur because because the process of raising money can be really fruitful for an entrepreneur even if even if they're struggling you know if they can really listen to the feedback that they're getting, and it, and it gets back to this kind of respect for the entrepreneur and respect respect for the process. I think
1: I, I agree with that, and, and honestly, the process of starting a firm, you know, uh, from the venture side and and raising money for that really drives that message home. Uh, you know, Jeff, you you were an entrepreneur too before your venture career. I am sure you've uh, now seen it from both sides and and uh,
0: and live into that. Yes, a struggling, struggling entrepreneur I was. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I learned incredible lessons and I had great people around me. I mean, I I think you, you talked about some of the mentors and it is so important in our business to surround yourself with people that you can learn for because it is such an experiential business. And it's, it is hard to, you know, really learn what we do in any kind of school, even though we can certainly bring a lot of, a lot of things from schooling, as we've talked about, but, but the, you know, the process of going through what I did at Facet Solutions and learning from, you know, I had great people on my board from Kevin Connors to Juliet Backer and Joe Mondado. I mean, people who had a lot of insight, but struggling to raise money in that time and run a clinical trial. I mean, those are things that I really learned from. And, you know, every situation is a little bit different. You don't want to be too dogmatic, but having that experience, it definitely informs things that I do today even. Yeah. So one of the things I thought it would be good to get into is, you know, some of the key issues that we face uh, in our industry and really try to engage in a discussion uh, on those. And and maybe just a, you know, a very broad question for you is because we've come a long way over the last, uh, I think, 20 years or so. Um, and this industry continues to evolve, evolve and change at a rapid pace. But as you if you were to take a moment to reflect, you know, what what's going well in our ecosystem and what are the things that still remain As challenges.
1: Yeah, well, that's great. And I I would say I I do think of our work as being part of an ecosystem. And I I perceive we have a pretty sustainable opportunity to fund entrepreneurs and back innovations that can improve clinical outcomes and reduce costs. I mean, I, I think the role that our companies and new technologies play is essential to the future of healthcare, both improving and becoming more accessible to people and i think that at least my perception over the last whatever 15 years is that the different stakeholders in our ecosystem whether it's entrepreneurs you know potential large company acquirers regulators including fda they they sort of have a sense of clarity on the the fact that we are part of an ecosystem we all have to work together and um you know there's a little bit more trust and transparency about the opportunities and challenges and that does make all the hard work we have to do and our entrepreneurs have to do easier.
0: Thanks for joining me on MedTech Talk. If you enjoy the conversation or if you have a guest ideas for me, please rate the podcast at Apple Podcasts and leave your guest or topic idea in the review. I'd love to hear from you. And I think, you know, as I, as I think about that, one of the things that still frustrates me and just how do we get all the stakeholders to the table is still on the reimbursement side of things. And I think Medicare is 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 engaged. And I think we're, you know, even this week we're seeing some progress, it seems um, but but commercial payers, it still seems like there's that distrust of industry. Um and I, I just wonder like how do we break through that barrier, you know, continue to break through with it, with Medicare and and even get the commercial payers to the table. You know, can we make this truly an ecosystem. Because I, I agree with you. I think, I, I think we got the message long ago that it's not just enough to, you know, create a better widget that is, you know, nice and innovative, but adds cost to the system. And we have to really be tackling both improved outcomes and reduced cost, which should play to everybody. But, but I think that's still a difficult message, or at least it's one that is, or viewed with skepticism by by payers, so I'm curious what your thoughts are on how we how we start to bridge that gap.
1: Well, first of all, I agree with you. I think I think reimbursement is the most significant hurdle that innovations face. Truly, truly new innovations face. Um, I, I think the fundamental issue is the timelines and the capital requirements to get innovations to market have extended. Mm-hmm. You know, for for a bunch of reasons. I think um, you can point to you know preclinical product development requirements clinical trial sizes um fundamental input costs along the way right you know inflation mm-hmm. um but when you when you really kind of break down where there's a, a significant burden on time and in my opinion a uh, a fair amount of re- I'll call it redundancy it's convincing payers that these innovations are worth paying for. Even after, in many cases, you've run high quality level one clinical trials that demonstrate, you know, clinical outcomes benefits. And, And most of the time, I think the medical device industry is funding innovations that can be inherently cost saving on their face, right? Whether it's enabling transitions to less invasive procedures with faster recovery times or sites of care delivery that are lower cost, less risk, et cetera. A lot of what we're funding is just sort of fundamentally cost saving. It may take a little time uh, in terms of kind of learning curve and procedural refinements. But when you look at how these technologies come to market, they, they are almost invariably cost saving over the medium to long term. Mm-hmm. But you know the reimbursement side, I think in a lot of ways we're fundamentally facing stakeholder that doesn't want to pay for new things as part of their business model. I mean, it's sort of inherent in that. And I I would distinguish in a lot of ways, you know, Medicare and CMS from commercial payers in this regard. And, And one of the reasons that I focus a lot of our policy efforts on CMS is, number one, they're the largest, quote unquote, single payer, you know, covering more lives, you know, particularly for patients that are consuming medical technologies. And so they're an important stakeholder in that regard. But Actually, I also don't think they're fundamentally opposed to covering new things that are beneficial. The question is, at what point do they really believe that they're beneficial and what are the requirements to demonstrate that to them? I also believe because of the largest payer, they can be influential in the policies they set and the things they're willing to cover and when, you know, do have an impact on how commercial payers have to then follow suit. And so I think as a partner in the ecosystem, they're an important focal point because they can be more influential than if we just say went for... United Healthcare, whatever, but it's this path of post approval validation and extension of the timelines to get products into the U.S. market, in particular, um, that's really killing the the math associated with making investments in truly novel, you know, venture back companies, especially at an early stage. You know, you 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 know as well as anyone, Jeff, we've got sort of ten year fund lifetimes. And you really can't justify investing in the series A of a sort of new startup company when it's going to take seven to ten years to get through the you know clinical validation and FDA approval process. And then it could take another, you know, four to seven years after that to get coding coverage and reimbursement in place to have a, a US market opportunity that you can access and commercialize into. I mean just it vastly exceeds the timelines of our funds. And and you know, no LP is going to buy into that model. So got to figure out how to compress these timelines. And I think reimbursement and the requirements there are the things that probably deserve the most attention and could move the needle the most.
0: I totally agree. And it's, you know, it's, it's the, we can have our qualms with FDA, but at least there's sort of a well understood, you know, pathway there. And there's, and the incentives are more or less aligned. I mean, I think it, FDA really wants to see New treatments come to market, but the the lack of transparency and predictability on the payer side creates uncertainty, which really you know has a negative effect on on uh, on on innovation, the willingness to invest in things that are really a whole new transformative type of treatment. So it's it has sort of implications, and I, I you know all the work you've done to on some of the things that will would allow for more of a bridge to coverage, I think, uh, with Medicare is going to be, I think, hopefully, very helpful. The commercial side, um, you know, I still don't know, like, what, you know, I think we face another issue with commercial payers in that many of their members are only members of that carrier for a, a handful of years. And so when they do the math on investing in these patients or their members, essentially, I think they struggle to justify whether, you know, You know whether it's worth making that investment, and I I don't know if you have creative ideas on how we how we get them to the table to think about basically investing in their membership.
1: Well, I think um, I think you're right. First of all, that that those economics are, are real for them. I I have wondered if there aren't more opportunities to almost force them to cover new technologies that that have a significant patient impact because either. You know, patients as a, a purchaser of insurance or their employers can make decisions between different commercial insurance providers. And could could we do a better job of helping employers or patients distinguish between payers that are more restrictive in their policies, not covering technologies that patients want access to or employers believe are best for their uh, their teams, and almost force a more competitive dynamic where... You know, supporting innovation through coverage policies is actually how they effectively compete, mm-hmm. you know, for their customers. I think it's interesting in theory, not the easiest thing to do, um, but I think there are some good examples. Um, you know, diabetes is a is a particularly noteworthy one. Some companies have pursued pretty aggressive um, policies to limit access to technology and... Uh, whether it's brands or types of products like CGMs or pumps. And it really came back to bite them because that patient community has significant expectations around, you know, freedom of choice and personal preference means a lot in managing a chronic condition like that. Um, And I think we've seen, you know, efforts to limit patient access really backfire. Mm. Yeah. It makes me just think there may be other opportunities in our categories, you know, where we could provide some of that education or market differentiation. <laughs> at, at Relevant, we were we've been receiving um an increasing number of commercial payer coverage policies, you know, this year uh for the intracept procedure for chronic axial back pain. And uh I it almost you, you almost want to sponsor, you know, marketing campaigns that celebrate, you know, when a payer announces that positive insurance policy and they're doing it ahead of the open enrollment period. Um it's like we ought to be putting out, you know, press releases on their behalf, yeah. uh, you know, signaling, you know, who's who's out there and ahead of the curve relative to their competitors.
0: Yeah, that's it's really interesting. I hadn't quite uh, appreciated, uh, you know, just the importance of the ability to inform the consumer via these, you know, direct to patient campaigns that have really become, you know, very prevalent. I mean, the Inspire, I think, does a great job of it. Um, with their commercials, but really, you know, beginning to arm the consumer with much more information. And it probably drives doctors crazy to a certain extent when they walk in with a whole host of, uh, you know, things that they've uh, come up with. But but empowering the patient is, uh, I think, probably the best, one of the best ways we have to influence the, the carrier.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, I, I think the other is, you know, to what extent can we better establish new technologies as, as bona fide standards of care. Mm. And, you know, when payers are denying patients access to technologies that can be life-saving or, or, you know, life preserving, you know, particularly let's, let's imagine, you know, Medicare starts covering a technology, you know, ahead of private commercial payers, which frequently happens. Um, Can can you make a case that, you know, denial of that care is, is uh, almost something that, that, there could be liability for, yeah. and it, it's a it's a challenge to pick the right technologies and the right circumstances. But I've seen some pretty egregious examples of patients being denied access to devices, diagnostics, or drugs that um, you know we, we we know are are better and they're proven to be better. And there's no excuse for for foot dragging um, by private payers.
0: Yeah, yeah, and that, that language you're using certainly seemed to come out in some of the he- hearings or proceedings on the Hill this week with respect to Medicare and covering new technologies. And it is about access and providing, you know, Medicare eligible patients with access to things that could really dramatically alter their lives. So that, that would be great if that became part of the ethos uh, for commercial carriers as well. You know, maybe one thing. It would be good to get into and we're, we're touching on it a little bit because we've talked about, you know, just the cost of getting some of these companies through to approval and then, you know, not, not even talking about commercialization. Cause that's probably the most costly part of part of their journey. But the, you know, there's no question that the amount that it takes to get these companies from concept through to commercialization has gone up and i think it's a reality in our business that a lot of folks have sort of steered away from the early stages of investing in order to shorten that timeline for their uh investment and it's created this funding gap for early stage companies i mean i all the time i'm trying to answer for entrepreneurs you know who if you're not going to go this early then who else should i talk to and there's probably just a handful of Sort of institutional investors, I can point them to. And I I guess one question I have for you is: What? How do you answer that question? How, when an entrepreneur is just looking for that, you know, first million or three million, how do you advise them as far as how to get it off the ground?
1: That's a great question, and and I think you're absolutely right. There there is a funding gap uh, for early stage companies. Um, You know, I will say part of our investment strategy has evolved to really focus on to focus most on the total timeline and capital requirements to get to a scalable U.S. commercial opportunity, and there are there are cases where uh, we see technology stage or product development stage investments that are really compelling. They can build a best-in-class product and, and get it to market. And if the you know clinical evidence generation requirements are reasonable, the regulatory path is is well understood, and then there's an existing reimbursement framework, mm-hmm. um, getting involved at an early stage can make sense for us. Uh, we we actually started a company called Evident Vascular and Fund One where we pursued that exact strategy. In other cases, if you've got to go validate all those stages for the technology and, and cover all those hurdles, it, it's it's irrational um, to do. Now that said, there are there are some sources of capital where sometimes they're family offices, sometimes uh, frankly nonprofits or other groups that are that are funding specific disease categories where. Um, there are early stage, you know, seed stage programs for investing and funding uh, early technology validation. In in other cases, uh, you know, companies have gotten pretty effective at applying for SBIR funds. And Mm -hmm. part of that process I'm finding that helps them is when part of their application includes a letter, you know, from someone like us validating that this first phase of investment, you know, it is required. It's worthwhile. And if the company is successful in advancing the technology, that someone like us will be there with interest in funding the next phase. Um, in other cases, I'm trying to engage with certain interest groups to support their efforts to raise funds, even if they're philanthropic, to create you know venture vehicles for early stage investment, in specific clinical categories. And even if I can't make that investment and I can't make that case to my LPs, I can at least make the case that the ecosystem will benefit and that, you know, they'll have partners at -hmm. later stages, you know, to take those technologies and programs forward. Um, So we're trying to do some things, even if we have to say no, um, we at least try to point them in directions of funding sources that that we respect, we think can add value and, you know, we enjoy working with, you know, when we can align with the right entry point for our fund. Yeah.
0: And I think the other thing that's been hard for, you know, investors trying to make the math work on going early stages. You know, we've been hamstrung a little bit historically with this notion that you know device companies are only going to sell in that I don't know two hundred to four hundred million dollar range. I feel like that's changing a bit, uh, particularly coming off of you know the 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 latest sort of wave of IPOs. Uh, where where you did get a lot of these companies standing on their own two feet and suddenly worth, you know, a billion, two billion plus. Do you do you think that will that will change people's thinking around investing in things that you know have more risk that are earlier? Or yeah, how has that affected your your thinking? I think um it's
1: a great question. We our teams talked about that too. I, I do think um valuations are improving at exit relative to you know, 5, 10, 15 years ago, according to stage development. And I think there's still a fairly competitive universe or a competitive landscape among buyers. And yet you have to think carefully about what types of projects you're going to embark on and how many buyers there will be, et cetera. And then at what stage they can really become productive with something. Um, you know, Input costs have certainly gone up with inflation. We just have to keep in mind mentally. You know, in our investment frameworks and how we think about, you know, what a company could be worth in three, four, five years that, you know, there is an attractive venture return there. And that it's not just on the on the front end where we're seeing, you know, inflation, our input costs, but on the back end, you can't expect to see higher valuations. Um, I think one of the challenges for our category is, you know, like like you and I, many of us have have been doing this for a long time and we've lived through some pretty dark days and um, we're a little bit scarred by that, right? But um, I think the ecosystem now, you know, over the last five years is in a much healthier place. It's exactly the the comments you made around, um, you know, what what it's been like to see companies get funded through an IPO window and to be able to stand up independent businesses and create significant value for shareholders as a really important alternative to try to preserve. And it's, it's part of how we think about, you know, investment selection. Yeah. Um, not to say it's always going to be there in every market, but if you're capable of building a business that can scale on its own, it it does it does send a message to potential buyers that, um, you know, they, they're likely to have to talk you out of that path.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, uh, I, th- I think, and I think our team thinks a lot about, that as we look at different deals is, you know, we want to invest in spaces where there is a healthy group of acquirers that they, you know, you know, could really uh, take this into their portfolio. Uh, but at the same time, where we have optionality uh, to also be a standalone, I mean, that's the best of all worlds. And it doesn't exist with every deal. But at the at the very, I guess, at least how I look at it, at the very, you know, sort of uh, baseline of it. I want a good group of potential acquirers because we never know what's going to happen in the public markets. Um, and I, I think we're sort of hard pressed to sort of bank on it on a, any company being a, a public company because many of them are, are really not cut out to be public companies. I, I don't know if you look at it the same way.
1: I do. I mean, I, I think um, <clears throat> there are certain categories where a, a single product company can scale and commercialize relatively efficiently and scale profitably, um, Mm -hmm. at least over the medium to long term. And those are compelling to us. You know, at the same time, there's still lots of areas in the landscape where innovations can add a ton of clinical value and are well worth funding. But ultimately, they should be probably part of the portfolios of large, you know, multinationals with all the benefits of you know, economies of scale around distribution and manufacturing. And if you really want to accelerate kind of monetizing, you know, the value of a technology, it should be in their hands. I think the question is, you know, at what point are they going to be willing to do that? In some cases, um, it's a long journey to kind of position that technology to be independent and then kind of test whether you should go public and further build a business or sell. I think that's why in a lot of cases we're. Often more actively exploring earlier strategic relationships, including mm-hmm. build-to-buys or other creative structures, whereby you know we recognize that there's a great asset out there. And there's maybe a couple of buyers, not five or six, but a couple of buyers who really should own it. Yeah. And I think we're having success in approaching them with a fairly transparent discussion around you know that vision. And the fact that we could be great company building partners to entrepreneurs that get it to a stage where it does make sense for them to, to buy it and acknowledging that if if they're not interested in figuring out how to fund and, and do that together, it's probably not going to get funded and it's probably not going to get funded by them internally either. And so I think I think we're seeing a lot more receptivity too among the buyers that, that these types of deals can make good sense. And again, in the spirit of being part of an ecosystem on both sides, um, there's a lot of room, I think, for everybody to succeed.
0: Yeah, I think that is that is one of the things that has really improved in our business is that those relationships, I think, it, you know, at least when I entered the business, there was a lot more kind of, I think, tension in that relationship between investor and, um, and strategic. And I feel like there's a lot more understanding now that actually, you know, we can get on the same page here and and do these sorts of uh, investments together. I think that's been a real, you know, a real nice development. I want to dive into one more topic here, and that, and and it's one of my favorite topics because as we talked about from the outset, sort of the the importance of the team of the entrepreneur and just how much of a people business that we're in. I mean, it's one of the most gratifying things, I'm sure, for you as well as you know, working with these entrepreneurs and teams because uh, they're, you know, such dynamic people in our business. But you one of the things I've admired about you and, and Bensana is that you guys have, have backed leaders that have had prior success, but you've also backed first-time CEOs. And that's, you know, uh, I'm curious how, you know, for those first-time CEOs, uh, you know, what are the qualities that you looked for, saw in those CEOs, and what gave you kind of the conviction that you, you had the right person and team uh, around the table.
1: Well, it's a great it's a great question. And as this is something we spend time on because um you can only back an experienced CEO so many times before she wants to retire. Right. So I think I think in our ecosystem we've got to continue to champion young entrepreneurs and executives. And um we're we're really proactive in reaching out, even even to folks that are, you know, directors at at large companies just to build relationships and recognize that over time, you know we're going to be this ecosystem together and they, they are our future, you know, VPs and C-level execs, Um, you know, to answer your question on, you know, backing first time entrepreneurs or at least first time CEOs, there's probably a number of things we look at. I'm not sure we have hard and fast criteria, but uh, you know, obviously a track record of success, including having worked as a part of a team that's been successful and you know, we believe a lot in mentorship, it's certainly been huge as a guiding principle in my career and try to do the same, you know, with our team, but it's true on the entrepreneurial side as well. You know, often great executives are mentored by other great executives and you just, you learn how to solve problems and how to how to treat people and how to execute um, from the best. You're, you're likely to kind of perpetuate that. I think we also really prioritize people that have deep insight into their clinical or commercial field that they want to pursue. It's one of the most important indicators to us that something's worth pursuing when, when a talented person says, you know what, I'm ready to take on the risk and the effort of going after this idea. Um, so it's having that insight of kind of what's what's missing or what's wrong or where's the opportunity in that category they know extremely well. And then being able to apply you know, their insight into understanding what is the ideal solution for it. I would say then, you know, the last piece is working with people who embrace the value of adding others to the team that can support them because no, no, or it's extremely rare for a first time CEO to really be a complete executive. And so, you know, you're working with people to build a team around him or her as a leader, and that can include, you know, on the management side, that could also be at the board level um, or other investors you work with in a syndicate, et cetera. So, and people that just appreciate, you know, that it's a long journey, that all of us have a learning curve and, you know, partnering with people that want to do things the right way. And I think those are just a yeah. handful of things we really prioritize.
0: You know, that last one, it really resonates with me because I think you can learn so much about entrepreneurs that have surrounded themselves with, you know, really top level talent, both both in terms of their advisors, but then, and then the people that are working with them. I mean, I think that says you know, so much. And as I think about the things that, you know, we've invested in together and and have looked at I mean, I think uh, it strikes me that was really key to success. You know, the CEO was great, but but the people around them were equally great. Totally agree. Well, Justin, uh, we've covered a lot of ground and I always have uh, such a great time uh, talking about these things with you. I can't thank you enough for for being on the podcast
1: well thanks jeff I, it has been fun and um, appreciate reaching out on the opportunity and look forward to hearing uh, a lot more of these from you in the future thanks for
0: all the effort you're putting into it thanks justin